Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA. In today's episode, Andy Katz talks with NCAA Chief Medical Officer Brian Hainline and former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy about the impact COVID-19 has had on college sports and student-athlete well-being. And welcome, everyone, to our NCAA social series here. I'm Andy Katz, pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hainline who is the chief medical officer for the NCAA, and Dr. Vivek Murthy, who is the former U.S. Surgeon General of the United States and also a member of the NCAA Board of Governors. Uh, Dr. Hainline, I want to start with you. If you can just quickly go back a couple of weeks in terms of the cancellation of the NCAA tournament and ultimately all spring sports, what went into that specific decision? Well, thanks, Andy and, and Dr. Murthy. Always great to be with you as well. So we had been tracking on this with the membership since January, but at the beginning of March, we put together an advisory panel of experts in the field of global health, infectious disease, security at mass events. Dr. Murthy was one of the experts. And we started getting information on a daily basis, and then it seemed like on an hourly basis. And over a period of about 10 to 12 days, it became really clear that COVID-19 was affecting a very large proportion of our society. We were getting numbers that didn't make sense with that, and that was because there just wasn't the infrastructure for testing that was available. And then in the days right before we first announced that we would hold the, the championships without uh, fans, including the final four for the women's and men, we started getting analyses from China as well. So remember, China had already a lot of experience with this, but the academic analyses were just coming out. And it was clear that the efforts that they made, very aggressive ones, and they were differential, really made a big difference. And we were also getting evidence that young people could carry a very high viral load, but had minimal symptoms. And so that impacted one area of decision-making and then what happened very quickly is, is that a number of campuses started shutting down for the spring. There weren't going to be uh, spring practices. And so logistically, it became difficult, too. But, but the remarkable thing from, from my point of view was that when we presented the recommendations of the advisory panel to President Emmert and to the Board of Governors, and Dr. Murphy sits on the Board of Governors, they heard that information and they were unanimous in making first the recommendation not to have spectators and then to cancel all of the events altogether. And, and it was a, a really a remarkable example of making a decision for the public good, for, for public health. And so it happened very, very quickly as we got uh, a remarkable amount of information in a short period of time. Yeah, Dr. Murthy, I was at the Big Ten Tournament in Indianapolis and saw the speed in which things changed remarkably from Wednesday night at the Big Ten Tournament where there was a crowd and fans booing because they announced there were gonna be no fans on Thursday to announcement of no fans, to then within hours that being canceled to the entire tournament being canceled. How would you describe what you saw in terms of the speed in which all this had to change? Yeah, it's a great question, Andy. And I think one thing we have to step back and recognize is that this is the kind of pandemic that we really have not seen in probably a century. So if you're asking about why this hasn't happened before, this kind of response with events being canceled, sporting events being postponed, it's because we have not had this kind of widespread public health threat uh, in really any of our lifetimes. So the speed at which we were moving was related to how much we were learning and how quickly it was coming in. And the truth is that the knowledge was coming in 
from all corners of the world, uh, from China, from South Korea, where cases were rapidly on the rise, to Europe, where cases were, cases were just starting to take off. And we had to make sense of all that and think about what would be in the best interests of, of the athletes. Now, one of the things that's important to recognize is that everything was put on the table in terms of options to consider. Everything from streamlined events to events with no spectators to uh, having no events at all. And what we were looking at was the number one, two, and three priority was to say, what is going to be optimal for the public's health? When we talk about the public's health, we're, not, we're talking about the health of athletes and of the staff, but we're also talking about the health of the larger public. And one of the things we've learned about COVID-19 and young people is two really important things. One is that even though young people are at lower risk than older people from having complications and certainly uh, a much, much lower risk from dying from COVID-19, many more of them get seriously ill than we had previously thought. And this is the caution about using early data uh, to be too um, perhaps um, forward-leaning or too blasé about things, because now we are looking at Europe and even at the U.S. data and realizing that young people are a large percentage of those who are actually hospitalized. But the other piece about young people is they can effectively transmit the virus, uh, because we know that this is a virus that spreads easily. If you're infected and you don't have many symptoms, maybe if you don't have any, any symptoms at all, that doesn't mean you can't spread the virus to other people. And people who are older or who have other conditions like heart disease or lung disease, they are much more prone to having serious effects of this illness. So we had to move fast as more data was coming in. We had to err on the side of protecting the public's health. And at, one point, at some point it became just very, very clear that there was no way to safely hold a tournament while still safeguarding the health of our athletes, the staff, and the general public. And Dr. Hainline, one other aspect of this, I mean, how much were you watching what was happening globally in terms of the sporting world, whether it was there were some events in Asia with no fans to some events in Italy where there were fans, and we're hearing more about that now, where there has been sort of a mass outbreak when there were fans before they had shut things down. So how much was that looked at, what was happening in Europe and in Asia, across the globe? Yeah, so one of the advantages I had, I also served on a task force with the International Tennis Federation. And so there were a number of tournaments internationally that were taking place. And we were actually making judgments about the safety of hosting it in Japan or in some aspects of China or in Australia. And so we were getting real-time information from, from those areas and, and making the best informed decisions we could. And it became clear that in Asia and in Europe that they were, they were, they were weeks ahead of us and, and that it was kind of rapidly coming upon the United States. So that helped guide some of the decision-making too, that you, know, you, you could actually do a modeling map and say, look at where Italy was at the time and where the United States was in that even though we were behind Italy, we were actually moving in the very similar direction. So it was that plus working with the sporting world in Asia and, and other areas of the world that, that we kind of were able to be maybe one or two steps ahead. And Dr. Murthy, how much were you hearing from professional sports leagues in this country, notably the NBA, as the decision-making process was going through with the NCAA? Well, I think there was communication among many of the leagues. You know, at a staff level, I'll let Brian comment on what that communication was like. But I was certainly in touch with people uh, in the NBA and hearing from, from others involved in other sports who were deeply concerned. And everybody was trying to figure this out at the same time. Everybody knew that, you know, that we wanted to prioritize public safety, but if it was possible to save the games or to save part of the season, 
you know, people wanted to do that. So we took a really hard look at all the different scenarios, but it became clear very quickly uh, that number one, if you had people in stadiums, even if you took all of the precautions that you wanted to take in terms of sanitary measures, cleaning the stadiums, making uh, hand gel and soap available everywhere, that you were not going to be able to markedly reduce the risk, at least not enough uh, to make that a safe event. And the other thing that became clear is even if you cleared out fans and had only the players and staff present, that that still constituted a crowd that was large enough and, and that was in close enough contact that the transmission of the virus would have been easy. And what we saw, in fact, is that weeks later, after that decision was made, the CDC ultimately did come come down and actually provided guidance saying that crowds of larger than 10 should actually not, not be permitted to slow the spread of the virus. But Andy, there's one last thing that it's important to keep in mind here, which is that there is a lag between the tests that you see being registered you know, on the news every day in terms of however many we have in New York and around the country and the actual infection that's happening right now. So if you see, for example, the numbers today, those are a reflection of how many people were infected one to two weeks ago. And so knowing that there was a lag here, we also had to recognize that even though at that time, the actual total case numbers in the United States were low, we had strong reason to believe that they were markedly higher. And when I say markedly higher, I don't mean maybe 50% higher. I mean, potentially 10 times higher than what we were seeing because of a lack of testing and because of the lag effect um, between infection and ultimate diagnosis. I just wanted to pick up on, on, on a couple of points that, that Vivek made. So the other thing we were doing was working with a group of physicians from the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. And they were all team physicians, boots on the ground at various championships. And we were getting detailed information from them. And they were really quite concerned and in some cases even frightened because they didn't have the, the personal protection equipment even back then that they needed. There was a, a big lag time in testing. But, you know, we even ran a scenario. We said, well, could we do, let's say, an event and, and, and make certain that everyone at that event with just essential staff, that they're actually free of, of, of the disease? But we couldn't do that because back then there was such a prioritization of testing just the critically ill. We couldn't even test the ill because there was not an infrastructure to do that. So as Vivek said, even in a relatively small group, um, we couldn't guarantee the safety of everyone. And, and a lot of that had to do with, with, with the testing uh, infrastructure that was available and the ability to really take care of everyone with the proper equipment. And I'll tell you one point that uh, had not gotten a lot of attention uh, are the officials. You know, we saw a couple of officials tested positive at various uh, tournaments prior to the shutdown. And, you know, those officials, while you can say, OK, one team A, team B are been in their home city and then they meet. The officials are going from city to city to city, multiple tournaments, and tracking them could have proved, you know, very difficult, I know, for the medical professionals and, and those of you in, in this kind of position. All right, so I want to shift to the student-athletes now. Um, Dr. Hainline, what, what kind of, um, what, what are you hearing from them right now in terms of their concerns as to what they can and cannot do during these essential lockdowns? Yeah, great question. So one of the groups that was part of our advisory panel was actually a student athlete liaison group. So 
there's something called student athlete advisory committees that they're at the national level and at every conference and at every school. And they're the legitimate voice of, of our student athletes. So we were hearing from them all along, but now we, we, we had a large webinar with the, the about 100 uh, student athlete advisory committee members. And they're concerned about a few things. Interestingly, and, and they've always carried this platform, they're very concerned about their mental health and, and just their sense of well-being. And when you think about it, something was taken away from them very, very suddenly, like a like an injury, a serious injury. And we know when that happens in sport, that that's when you become most vulnerable for mental health symptoms and even mental health disorders. And so they expressed concern about that. And they also expressed concern about the uncertainty of, of how to stay in shape and, and when they may be able to come back. And so we actually are providing guidelines for them. And uh, they came out with a beautiful letter today that they're sending to the student athletes across the entire country. And a lot of it has to do with setting up a, a, a very regular schedule of discipline. So work out two to three hours a day, just like you normally would. And you do that with your studies and, and you do the sorts of things that are necessary for self-care. And then there's this magical word of, of, of self-compassion. And, and how can we really be like that with ourselves and then compassion for the community? And I think the Student Athlete Advisory Committee members, they really understand that and they want to become a voice for athletes across the country. And I, and I think they will be. You know, Dr. Murthy, you've literally written the book on this topic to some degree in terms of loneliness. Um, and I wanted you to chime in here about, you know, for a student athlete, uh, they, are, they may have that connection wherever they're hunkering down with a family member or a close friend, but there's also that teammate, that camaraderie that they're used to when their workout partner, that now has that, that's been taken away. So how do you combat that and advise the student athlete of dealing with that aspect of loneliness during this pandemic? It's a really important question, Andy. And I really feel for our student athletes because many of them are having to dream, deal with dreams that they had, which are now being deferred uh, their lives have been disrupted utterly. Many of them are no longer in school because universities have put classes on hold. And even training, something they might be used to doing in the gym with partners, with the trainer, is now uh, much, much harder to do. So this has really upended the lives of our student athletes. And if you look broadly across the country, uh, you see that many people are struggling with how to figure out this new normal for however long it lasts. And one of the real challenges that people are having is around the social connection or lack thereof. You know, I think, Andy, one of the, um, one of the things that's happening right now is I think we're developing an even greater appreciation for how much we rely on each other and how much we rely on having people in our lives who we can go visit, uh, who we can see, who we can go out to eat with, who we can catch a movie with, who we can take a walk with. These are things that perhaps some of us took for granted uh, but I think this experience is making it clear that we truly do need each other. So in this moment where people are struggling uh, with fewer social connections and more loneliness, there are a couple of things I would suggest that we do. One is make it a point to spend at least 15 minutes a day calling or video conferencing with or writing uh, to somebody that you love and that you really care about. It's a small amount of time, but done consistently over days and weeks, it can really strengthen yourself a sense of connection. The second thing I would do is to focus on improving the quality of the time that you're spending with people. A lot of times in the modern world, we can be distracted when we're with other people. We might be talking to a friend on the phone, but we're also 
flipping through Instagram or looking at the news or refreshing our inbox. And in reality, this gives, moment gives us an opportunity to give someone else our full attention. That's actually one of the greatest gifts that we can give each other is the gift of our full attention. And so putting things aside and just for 15 minutes or however long you have, focusing on the conversation you're having with someone can significantly improve the quality of the connection that you feel with them. And finally, it turns out that serving other people, that helping others is a powerful route through which we can build connection. Uh, it automatically builds a relationship and an interaction with somebody and it also reaffirms to us that we have value to bring to the world. And if you look at the world right now, you'll find that there are a lot of people who are hurting and we have a lot of opportunities to serve. That could be calling a neighbor to check in on them and make sure they're okay. It could be FaceTiming with your grandparents uh, to make sure that at this time when elderly people are worried about their health in particular, uh, that they are feeling okay and they know that folks are concerned about them. It could mean dropping off uh, some food or something that might bring joy to a friend who might be struggling, you know, who might be uh, figuring out um, that this thing, this is going to change your life in a profound way and they're not quite sure how to deal with it. So if we can focus on making sure we're spending time uh, with people each day, even if it's a small amount of time, making sure the quality of the time is good and ensuring that we are looking for ways to help during this time when everyone is hurting. I think we can emerge from this difficult period with even stronger social connections than we had before. Appreciate that. Obviously, uh, extremely important for student athletes and all students and all of us with what you're detailing there. Uh, Dr. Hainline, uh, let's go now to the actual workouts. Uh, you know, a lot of us have maybe a Peloton or we have videos that we can do in our home. We can go out for a run. These are good social distancing things. But for those that rely on as simple as a ball, a basketball, and if you don't live in an apartment, let's say you do have a hoop in front of your house. Um, how do you deal with who else can touch that basketball, that glove, if you're playing catch, you're a pitcher, or if... Uh, you know, you're a football player and you want to just throw the football. I mean, how do you deal with who can actually work out with you during this time? Well, it's a great question, Andy. And it's one we actually put forward to the advisory panel and they did give, give recommendations on that. So we really don't understand the, the degree to which uh, the uh, coronavirus, this new coronavirus, can actually remain intact on an inanimate surface such as a ball. But the advisory panel came together and recommended against any sort of exercise in which you're sharing a ball. And one thing I think is very, very important, and this is where the student athletes, I think, are carrying the torch on this, and that is the sense of social responsibility. And with that, you should assume that any person is potentially infectious. And that's what the social distancing is about. And so if you can exercise with someone else in a field and so you're doing your burpees, you're doing your sprints, you're doing your push-ups, and, and so forth, that's fine. But sharing a ball is right now off limits. So you may be with a family member that you've been with for a few weeks. And if you've been in that same house for more than a couple of weeks, well, that's a situation when you may be able to do so. But otherwise, it's considered off limits. And that goes the same for things like sharing dumbbells, sharing weights, or you're sharing the same chin-up bar. That if you're doing that, you, you need to presume that someone's hands, because we frequently touch our face, that they potentially have a, a, an infectious droplet. 
And so if they're touching an object, that has to be sanitized before you use it. So so it is tricky. It can be done in, in some group settings, groups of two, if you if you do everything properly. But the ball sharing is off limits for now. Dr. Murthy, what's your advice for those athletes uh, that are fall athletes um, who, you know, maybe need to prep in the summer of this uncertainty? We just we just don't know when any sense of normalcy, even in a limited sense, will be back on. So how would you advise those student athletes to deal with that kind of uncertainty over the next few months? Yeah, you know, this is, I really feel for them because the uncertainty, I think, is what's killing so many of us. Uh, maybe we can do this for a week, maybe we can do it for longer, but not knowing how long it's going to last is really tough. Um, a couple of things I would say. One is, I am hopeful, and I think many of us are hopeful, although we don't know for sure. Uh, we're hoping that this virus will respond to warmer weather uh, by reducing in frequency. That happens with the flu. It happens with some other viruses uh, that are in the same category of viruses as this one, uh, some other coronaviruses. But only time will tell if this one responds uh, to warm weather. If it does, then that may give us a reprieve when we can re-engage uh, socially and re-engage with our normal types of training. I do also want to say, though, that even though there are restrictions on what we can do in terms of going to the gym and being with other people, we can still go outside. And so if running you know, for you know, cardiovascular conditioning is something that, that you can do, that's still open to you. you know, if biking is something you like to do, you can do that as well. Uh, going outside, enjoying nature, these are actually things that are good to do. We just can't do them uh, in large groups. And finally, I would just say to student athletes that you know, I understand that this is extraordinarily difficult, especially because of where so many of them are like in their career. They're on the cusp of making huge decisions. Some of them are thinking about going pro. Others are thinking about the next step in their academic career. Others are thinking about jobs. And this feels like it may be putting all of that on hold. What I want to say, though, is that you're not alone in this effort and in this struggle. Many people around the country are in a similar boat where their futures are on hold. And one of the great challenges that we're faced now uh, is that in order to safeguard our health, we have to make some of these sacrifices for a period of time. They're not easy. And even though we don't know how long they will last, what we do know from looking at other countries is when we observe a period of intense social distancing, we can in fact reduce uh, the spread of the virus. This is one of those rare moments where the whole world is faced with a challenge that it can't overcome solely by itself. Uh, we've got to all work together. We've got to sacrifice together. People are doing that. And I'm inspired by the athletes who have taken up that call and who recognize that we've all got to do our parts as painful as it will be. And what I know is that the organization, uh, the NCAA, um, that universities, that coaches and staff are eager to re-engage with students and support them, not just during this time, but certainly uh, when the restrictions left. Dr. Hayline, uh, there was one question that came uh, when we were soliciting some questions about international student athletes. I mean, there are even more facing an uncertain time, not knowing when travel bans will be lifted, whether it's their home country or here in the United States. What would be your advice to those international student athletes as they deal with this uncertainty of whether or not they'd be able to return in time for next school year? 
That's a great question. And we really feel for the international students because even when they are on campus, uh, they, they can feel culturally displaced. And, and, and that's something that we were addressing from a mental health point of view. And so now they're in even more uh, greater uncertain times. And I think the best advice we, we can give is, is that there will be a time when things will return back to normal. We don't know when, but but I think it's good to be in the mindset that you want to be prepared for when that time is. And so rather than thinking about, is this gonna be one month or three months or six months, that you actually go into your own internal schedule, sort of like a periodization schedule. And you say, well, I'm going to really be working out now. And I know for the next month, it's important to have this level of baseline function. And then I'm going to increase it uh, two months from now. And so you start thinking in, in week and month increments. And that's how the Olympic athletes do so well. They don't think about the long term. When is this going to happen? You're just sort of thinking in shorter term segments. And that would be important for the international students. This time will come and, and be prepared for when it will happen. And Dr. Murthy, there were a number of other questions, but you both have answered them eloquently uh, you know, as to why no fans, why there couldn't just be two teams and officials and, and where we are in terms of the pandemic overall. Um, but if there's one that I just want to bring back that you did touch on early just to close this out, uh, you know, there was obviously a lot of concern about why June um, championships were canceled. And we saw that obviously a lot of universities shut down. So there would be no athletes, no students on campus. So it's kind of hard to practice when the whole campus is shut down. And I'm sure that's why a lot of these things were, you know, even months out canceled. But from your perspective, you know, what was in the decision-making as to why you think events in June were canceled as in like the College World Series, the college softball, well, those kinds of events in March when they weren't scheduled till June? It's a good question, Andy. And one of the hardest things to predict here uh, for this virus is the time frame that it'll take to get it under control. But one thing that we have the benefit of in the United States is looking to some countries that experienced the epidemic before us, countries like South Korea and, and Singapore and China which are still in the throes of dealing with COVID-19, but at a much, much better place than where we are right now. And if you look closely at those countries, what you see is that even when extreme measures were implemented, including social distancing, closing down businesses, um, testing really broadly to ensure we knew exactly where the infection was, even when those were instituted broadly in those countries, it took several months uh, for things to get to the point where the number of new cases was really small. And at that point, uh, the countries then felt comfortable slowly starting to ease back uh, into physical proximity and getting businesses up and running again. Now, if we think about the United States, what we know is that we have been a bit, little bit behind when it came to responding to this. It took us a while to ramp up the response. We didn't have enough testing, so we didn't quite know what we were dealing with in terms of the extent of spread. And as a result of that, we weren't able to jump on it as quickly as some of the other countries. And so what we should expect is that it will take at least you know, as much time as they took, if not maybe a little longer, to really tamp this down and get it under control. If you recognize that and also recognize that there's you know, one to two week lag between 
you know, the numbers we're seeing in terms of positive cases and the number of people and when people are getting infected. And you start to realize that we've got to be thinking of this not just as something that may last a couple of weeks, but as something that could last a few months. And what everybody wanted to do, uh, at least most of the people that we have been in touch with across the sports world, is people wanted to be safe. They didn't want to get to mid-May and all of a sudden realize that we had a full-blown uh, outbreak here in the United States in large cities and small towns, and there was absolutely no chance anything could be held. That wouldn't have been fair to athletes and to their families and to the staff that were playing. Uh, this is a consideration also if you think about uh, the Olympics and other sports where athletes are training for a long time for an event, uh, leaving them in limbo uh, to keep training for an event that may or may not happen is both physically challenging but also psychologically challenging, uh, especially when you're telling people, hey, you can't go work out because of physical distancing restrictions. So putting all of that together, I think people saw their writing on the wall and they realized that this is a longer term prospect to address this virus. It's not going to be a few weeks. And that is why ultimately so many of these events were pulled down, even though they were happening a few months down the line. Dr. Vivek Murthy and Dr. Brian Hainlein, uh, so appreciative of your time, everything you've said. I think everyone certainly now is heeding uh, all of the restrictions that need to be done here going forward in social distancing and staying home and staying safe. I wish the best for both of you to do the same, stay safe. Let's stay sane uh, throughout this process. And I know we'll all get on the other side shortly. Um, for everyone out there, you can go to ncwa.org slash COVID-19 for more information on this subject that, of course, is gripping not just this country, but the entire world. We will continue this series, certainly throughout the course of the, of the spring. Thanks for watching, everyone.